Welcome to Category 5 Technology TV. It's episode number 568. And this week, my wife Becca is here. Hello. We're going to be checking out NEMS, Nagios Enterprise Monitoring Server. We've been developing it for the past couple of years, and it is awesome. Completely biased. However, I think you're going to agree with me by the end of tonight's show. Stick around. Lots of great stuff coming up for you. This is Category 5 Technology TV. Our live recordings are trusted only to solid-state drives by Kingston Technology. Revive your computer with improved performance and reliability over traditional hard drives with Kingston's SSDs. Category 5 TV streams live with Telestream Wirecast and Nimble Streamer. Tune in every week on Roku, Kodi, Plex, and other HLS video players. For local showtimes, visit Category5.tv. Category5.tv is a member of the Tech Podcast Network. If it's tech, it's here, cat5.tv slash tpn, and the International Association of Internet Broadcasters, cat5.tv slash iaib. Welcome to this, our annual kind of cottage special, if you will. It's our vacation week, so we've given everyone else the week off and pre-recorded this week's show. So uh, I have the opportunity of welcoming my wife, Becca, here to the studio with me once again. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you again. Um, but uh, tonight, uh, we're just kind of going to go over a couple of things with uh, NEMS Nagios Enterprise Monitoring Server. I think mm -hmm. I'm going to actually do a few demonstrations um, over at the, at the desk. But mm -hmm. um, giving Jeff and Sasha the week off means Becca and I get to do the show with you this week. So I hope you enjoy. Um, first of all, looking at the news this week, we're hearing about how um, Linux is being pulled from a lot of government computers mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and being replaced with Microsoft Windows. And it made me think about your, your getting into your college courses and everything else and, and what is it like for uh, an end user who's not uh, like a Linux guru to, to use Linux, because I think that's really what's happening is that a lot of the users who have Windows machines at home, they go to work and it's a Linux machine and they don't quite know how to use it. And so they've been complaining for 15 years kind of thing. And so they're switching them back to Windows just to appease the masses. But what's it like for someone like yourself? You know, you're starting a college course and they present you with all the course curriculum and it's all Windows based. Well, it hasn't been an issue so far because I've been using LibreOffice for a decade. <laughs> right. So I already know that I have to be sure to save it as a docx file rather than .odt, otherwise other people can't open it if they're using Windows. So I already know to do that. I'm already familiar with it. I think for me it would be the opposite. If I had to suddenly use a Windows computer, I wouldn't be familiar with Microsoft right. Word or Excel because I haven't used those in so many years. So it would so be the opposite for me. So the cost and the expense of, of them switching government computers from Linux to Windows is simply on account of people don't know that, hey, you can just save it as a docx mm -hmm. in order to make it compatible with Microsoft Office. Does yeah, that, if you didn't know that, then you'd always be dealing with, well, I can't open that file on yeah, my computer. Yeah, I, I don't have Word. Well, does it really matter? Like, do you find that it's a hindrance when your professor sends you a, a task and says, hey, do this PowerPoint presentation? Well, I don't have PowerPoint, right? It hasn't been a, an issue so far, but I do have one course coming up that's going to be learning Excel. 
Okay. So it's going to be all assignments done on Excel, which means I'll be using the Linux version. I forget what it's called. LibreOffice Calc. Calc, that's right. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't yet know if that's going to be an issue because uh, I don't know how similar the interfaces are. So it might be easy for me to figure it out on Linux versus uh, what's been demonstrated in class. Right. But because I haven't taken that class yet, I don't yet know. I think, you'll I find think it might be a bit of an issue as I'm first learning it. Yeah. Once I get the hang of how to mm-hmm. use the Libra Calc, it probably won't be a problem after that. Yeah, I think the, the Excel clone, if you will, is, is very, very good. Like, I'm, I'm always impressed with it. Um, I think they've done a great job, LibreOffice, of making a, a Microsoft Office alternative. Oh yeah, it looks the same. Certainly looks pretty the same. similar. Yeah, so. you're used to uh, you use a LibreOffice Writer for writing, mm-hmm. and you collaborate with people who use Microsoft Office on Windows. And how has that been as far as transferring files back and forth, and you editing a Word document on LibreOffice, for example? Well, when they send me a Microsoft Word file, it just opens no problem. But when I send them a file, I make like I said, I make sure it's the docx file rather than .odt yeah. because otherwise they wouldn't be able to open it. That's too easy. Yeah. That really is too yeah. easy. Any, any issues that you've, you've encountered? Um, as far as compatibility between the Windows and Linux counterparts? I haven't, well like I said, I haven't really encountered issues yet. Mm-hmm. I, I think there might be some issues with Excel, but I don't yet know. We'll I think she'll be surprised. We'll circle back to this because I think the because uh, it's an Excel so, course. It's an Excel course. That's I can understand the hesitation and the fear of getting into an Excel course without Excel. Yeah, exactly. But wouldn't it blow people's minds if it's like, oh well, I can do everything the same? Yeah. Because I do I do equations. You've seen my like cryptocurrency portfolio and everything on on Excel or on yeah, Calc. it looks the same. So as long yeah. as. Uh, the navigation is pretty similar, so that it's not hard for me to figure out where it is in Libra versus File, Excel. Save as. <laughs> yeah, we did encounter one issue, which was um, was it was it in it was in Calc, wasn't it? No, it was where were, where were we having trouble with fonts? Only in that you you it was oh, a right, demand of right. the course that you had to have Times New Roman. Yeah, just essays and things are supposed to be in so Times in New Roman. Writer okay. didn't have Times New it's Roman. It's like Word, right? right they didn't okay. have the, f- the required font, so we had to download the font. So on Linux, you simply, I mean, download the, the uh, now it's the MS Core fonts. I think there's a package anyways that gives you the Microsoft fonts and installs it. But the, the reason for that is that Microsoft created fonts and included them with the Windows operating system. And so a Windows course is going to say, use these fonts, because on their Windows machine, they have all these fonts, like Arial, yeah. Times New Roman, mm-hmm. Comic Sans MS. And if they ever tell you to use that, laugh in their faces. <laughs> but so it, on Linux, it doesn't come with that because it's a Microsoft product, but you can install it easily enough. And it wasn't hard for us to do that. So no. and then it made it compatible for you. So that's cool. We'll circle back. I'd love to circle back and find out how things turned out on the oh, Excel the, course. There was the, a similar issue with the PowerPoint the font I used when you opened it, right? The font it, was messed yeah. up, so you. It wasn't messed up per se. It was. It was kind of like some of the bullet points were overlapping some of the paragraphs and things like that. But it was really, really yeah. easy to resolve. So I guess moving a file, it'd be interesting to see. You know, if you open that file on a uh, a Windows machine in PowerPoint, would it open 
differently? I guess or? the issue would be if you sent in the file not knowing it would not show up properly for the other person. Right. You'd and want to be sure before you send it in. And that can happen. That's probably why the course um, directors say use Times New Roman because they make the assumption that everyone's on Windows. And so with that assumption, it's safe to say that everyone has Times New Roman. So by saying that, they're not saying Times New Roman is a great font because um, it doesn't really seem appropriate for screen display. It's more for like newspapers. Mm -hmm. But um, by saying it, they know that everyone's document is going to come in and it's going to display the way it displayed on their computer because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's the same font. But, yeah. um, but that's really just by, by default. But, mm -hmm. So that could be part of it anyways. But Let's circle back in a, in a couple months and see how that, uh, how that shaped up for you. Mm -hmm. uh, we'd love to hear from you as to your um, compatibility experiences as well. Um, we're very Linux-centric here at the show, and uh, our household is very, very Linux-centric. I think we've got one Windows machine, just, and that's only uh, as of late. And it's probably been the most trouble of all the computers <laughs> on the network. Yeah. We're dealing with mm -hmm. idiosyncrasies of Microsoft Windows the hack 10. That Tally figured out. Yeah. Like, <laughs> do you want to tell them? Like, you have to, in order to get Netflix to work, you have to click on the start button first. Uh huh. Welcome to Windows 10. It makes no but sense. But she, whatsoever. we, he didn't figure that out. Our 13 year old daughter figured that out. She's a hacker. She's <laughs> going to be like her dad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've got to take a really quick break. When we come back, I'm going to be sitting down over there. Becca's going to take uh, a break through this. We're going to be looking at an enterprise monitoring server that is available for you absolutely free, and I've developed it to make it absolutely dead simple to deploy, dead simple to use, and really it is, I, I know there's a bit of a bias here, but it is probably one of the best Nagios deployments that I've ever seen. So stick around. <laughs> For a limited time, get your hands on limited edition shirts from the Category 5 TV network. These high-quality shirts are manufactured by Teespring, a fundraising website, and your purchase will help support the shows we produce. Get yours today and send us your pictures to be featured on the corresponding show. Visit cat5.tv slash shirts to support us and get your official network shirt today. cat5.tv slash shirts. Welcome back. This is Category 5 Technology TV. Back in 2016, we looked at NEMS 1.1, and now two years later, and several thousand downloads later, it's time to look at NEMS 1.4.1. What the heck is NEMS Linux? That's the question running through your mind if you've never heard of it before. Well, NEMS stands for Nagios Enterprise Monitoring Server. So if you've heard of Nagios, that's fantastic. Now you're on to it. If you haven't heard of Nagios, let me give you a really quick rundown. It's a tool used by IT administrators of any size network in order to monitor network assets. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> to, to simplify it, let's imagine your hard drive in your server is running low on disk space. How would you know that unless you were standing in front of the server or actually actively monitoring that? Uh, maybe one of the hard drives in your RAID array has failed and you need to re replace it. Well, how would you know that unless you look at the server and see the amber light? Uh, there are a variety of different ways that Nagios can help 
uh, enterprise and home users to know if there is an, an issue um, on the network. And it's very proactive because we can see things, um, say if your hard drive hits 80% threshold, then we get a notification so that we know that it's time to look at maybe deleting some files or perhaps adding more storage to the server. And that's exactly what I uh, set out to use Nagios for here at the studio because we're always throwing HD video at our server. So if we ever run out of space, that can be a big problem. It really helps me to know that I'm running low on space. It's almost time to add more storage to the server. That's very helpful. Nagios is used by big business like, uh, say, NASA. NASA, for example, if I can pronounce it right. Uh, NASA is obviously, you know, everything that they do is mission critical. It's very important for them to know if a system is failing or failed or has some problems. They need to know about that up upfront in advance so that's where Nagios comes in and Nagios is also in use in home networks and you know just users that are power users that want to know um, if there is a problem on their home network so it doesn't matter it's completely scalable and um, what is really really beautiful about it is it's also absolutely free and it doesn't matter if you're dealing with a two device network or a 10,000 device network it's still no cost so now we look at the hardware that, um, that you're going to use to run your Nagio server. A lot of us would figure that we need to have a server, like an actual physical server, uh, maybe something in the rack or maybe repurpose an old computer. But the problem is, is that with that, you're going to be using a lot of electricity for that one computer doing that very important uh, mission critical task of monitoring everything else. Uh, but... Um, why are we using so much power for something that can be run on uh, lesser equipment? Because these days we've got things like the Raspberry Pi that's really quite powerful. The Raspberry Pi 3 has a lot of oomph behind it, but deploying Nagios on something like that can be risky because of things like, well, what if your SD card fails or something like that? So NEMS Linux comes in and takes Nagios Core at its heart and has created um, a, a distribution for your Raspberry Pi and other SBCs that allows you to deploy easily on low-cost uh, and not just low-cost upfront, but low-cost ongoing uh, operational cost um, equipment such as the Raspberry Pi 3. Full disclosure, I am the developer of NEMS Linux, so maybe that gives it a little bit of, um, maybe that gives you a little confidence in it if you've been a long-time viewer of Category 5 Technology TV, um, but certainly um, it's important for you to note that, you know, I know a lot about it because I built it, so that's where I'm at. So let's take a look at how we actually get NEMS Linux. I'm going to hop on over to our website, nemslinux.com. It's as simple as that. And you can read all about what NEMS Linux is, um, kind of the, uh, the mantra, if you will, of what our vision is, what my vision is with NEMS Linux. And essentially, it boils down to get NEMS Linux and hop on over. We're going to deploy this on a Raspberry Pi 3. Now, I mentioned that, hey, if I'm going to put it on a Raspberry Pi 3, I need to know that this is going to be reliable, right? Uh, this is my mission-critical stuff. I need to know that it's monitoring and, and it's working. And that's where NEMS Linux does things very differently from any other Nagios deployment in that it has an automatic backup system. And not only that, but it has an automatic restore system. So if my SD card ever failed, 
I can easily and very, very quickly recover, and I don't lose my configuration or have to go through an onerous um, deployment process. Um, so that's where this is really, really different. So on this page, to download it, I can get the direct download or a BitTorrent. Now, I've taken the liberty of uh, pre-downloading it just so that uh, we could expedite things for the sake of this demonstration today. Um, so I'm going to bring up a program called Etcher, which you can get at etcher.io. We use that to burn, um, and I say burn, it's a, an old term that we used when we used to burn CDs, right? So you take an ISO image and you burn it to a CD. Well, these days we're using a micro SD card, and Etcher is the program that we use in, uh, in order order to burn, if you will, uh, the image that you're going to download from nemslinux.com to your SD card through an SD card reader. So I've got mine here, but you notice it's not plugged in. So what I'm going to do is I'm first going to select that image that I've already pre-downloaded for us, and I've put that in my downloads folder, uh, simply as where it's uh, default downloaded to. There it is. Uh, so I'm using the NEMS Linux 1.4.1 uh, for Pi. Now, and when you click Select um, Destination, Select Drive, you notice that it is empty. And that, to me, is very, very important. I want there to be no drive listed in there, because when I plug in my drive, I want it to be the only external drive. The reason that I do that, this is my own mindset, is so that I don't accidentally overwrite the wrong drive because you could easily do that using Etcher. So now I'm going to plug in my device and you see Windows 10 pops up with all these dialogues and I just need to cancel those and now I'll see my drive in the list and I see it's the only one so I can continue and now press flash. Through the magic of television I am able to do this in fast motion so we can be very thankful for that. <laughs> so it, uh, it takes about 13 minutes for me to burn this onto uh, my own SD card. And then it goes through a verification process, which simply checks the checksum of the burnt image to make sure that it, in fact, matches the one that I downloaded. Now it's popped up again because Windows has mounted the drive. Just close these windows. And I can see the flash is complete. Now, if there was any error message there, you might want to look at maybe a different card reader, maybe um, a different micro SD card. But basically, that's telling me that everything has worked just fine. So now I'm safe to disconnect this. Now I've got my micro SD card, which I'm going to insert into my Raspberry Pi 3. And this is now going to become my NEMS Linux server. With this Raspberry Pi 3, you notice there are three cables plugged in. I've got the power cable, which obviously is essential. I've got the Ethernet cable, which is also a requirement of NEMS Linux. Now consider this is a monitoring server, and it needs to be able to communicate with network assets. So if you do not have an Ethernet cable connected, you're doing it wrong. It's a necessity. You absolutely have to have that. Uh, I recommend against using Wi-Fi, although NEMS Linux does, in fact, support the Raspberry Pi Zero, though a lot of um, our users are plugging in an external Ethernet USB connector uh, in order to connect directly to Ethernet. Um, but you can use the Wi-Fi on the Raspberry Pi Zero. Simply hit Control-Alt-F2 on first boot. Speaking of first boot, which I'll show you, I have an HDMI cable plugged in. That is only for your benefit tonight so that you can see what comes up on the Raspberry Pi screen. 
Typically, a NEM server does not require being plugged into a screen whatsoever, and in fact, it's kind of pointless. So I'm just going to switch over to the capture device here, and I'm going to power on my Raspberry Pi, and we should see, there we are, it's going to come up for us. And this is all happening in real time, folks. Everything is live, and so everything that's going to happen here is exactly the process that you're going to go through in order to make this work on your own system. So let me zoom out there. Sorry about that. <laughs> Clicked on the wrong one. So it's booting up NEMS Linux for the very first time. And once it's up, we're going to get this splash screen. There we are. So you see NEMS Linux is, um, is up and running on 10.0.0.101. It also has a host name of NEMS.local, and it's detected by device as a Raspberry 3 Model B. And current CPU usage is rather high, and the reason for that is because um, when it first boots up, NEMS Linux is going through a check process. Um, it's checking for any updates to the operating system, to the actual NEMS Linux system itself, and it's getting updates and things like that. So, um, so just kind of hang tight for a couple of moments while, things, uh, while it does its thing. But first boot, it's going to use uh, a fair bit of resources, and so it's important to let that kind of go, and then you can go back over. You'll notice also my disk usage is at 81%. Well, that would be a problem, but we're going to resolve that once we do what's called a NEMS init, or an initialization process. And we should see that that CPU usage is going to start dropping down. Again, you don't have to wait for that, but just know that it is, um, it's going to take a few moments before NEMS is ready to go uh, when you first boot it up. Um, when you first turn it on. Uh, when I mentioned about the Raspberry Pi Zero, you see the instruction there? To log in, use SSH or press Control-Alt-F2. So on a Raspberry Pi Zero, you press Control-Alt-F2 with a connected USB keyboard, and then uh, you type raspy-config, and you set up your Wi-Fi, then do a reboot, and then everything will be up and going and ready to go. So it looks like everything's ready for us now, and I'm going to bring up my computer screen again. Here we go. And we're going to head on over to 10.0.0.101. And when I get there, it says your NEM server is not yet initialized. SSH to your NEM server and run sudo NEMS init. So let's do it. Um, now, I have PuTTY installed on this computer because I am on Windows 10. And I'm going to go 10.0.0.101. Now, again, remember, I haven't had to configure anything. So I just burnt this, and I've booted, and I'm just following the instructions on the screen. Um, um, so how nice is that? Let's, uh, I'm just going to bring, just going to kind of zoom in on that putty window so that you've got a better, a better view. There we go. That should do for us. Now I'm going to log in with the username nemsadmin. Password is also nemsadmin. Now that's our default, and that is only for now. It's going to change, and I'm going to be the one to change it. So looking at this initial uh, message of the day, boot, uh, like loader screen, you can see again very similar information to what we saw on the splash screen, and we can see uptime, current load is is actually going down, uh, and we can again see that we are using 81% of our disk space. So now I'm going to follow those directions and type sudo nems-init. Type in my password, which again is nemsadmin. And it says, welcome to nems initialization script. Goes through a little bit of updating just to make sure things are up to date before it goes through. And that just makes sure that if there are any patches or updates for your system before you initialize it, that those get applied. So let's just let that finish. Takes a moment. 
generally speaking, I'll just say, um, this is going to be really the only main time that you're going to need to access the terminal in NEMS Linux, because NEMS Linux has been designed specifically to be very GUI-based in your web browser, and you're going to see that, and it's certainly something that makes NEMS stand out um, based, you know, in comparison to uh, traditional Nagios deployments, for example. So there we go. It looks like it's just wrapping up. Okay, there we go. Now we are ready to initialize. What would you like your NEMS username to be? I'm going to use Robbie F. All right, username accepted. And now I'm going to enter what I'd like my password to be. It's asking it, uh, for it again. And that is to make sure that I typed it correctly. And you'll see now it goes into, it's adding the Linux user. It's deprecating the old NEMS admin user, migrating data, initializing a new Nagios user, and going through the whole process that normally I'd have to do manually. It's creating contacts and contact groups. And now it's asking me for my time zone. Make sure you select yours appropriately. You see that Nagios uh, failed to initialize. That's because I have yet to uh, actually configure my um, server. So that's not going to initialize until I've done that. Then it generates SSL certificates. You see that? So it's important to note that NEMS uses a different SSL certificate for every NEMS Linux server out there. So if you're afraid of man-in-the-middle attack, don't worry. Uh, that's all part of the initialization process that every NEMS server gets its own, uh, its own um, SSL certificate generated during initialization. Then it says, now we will resize your root partition to give you access to all the space. Done. You must reboot now. When you reboot your login, uh, you must log in as Robbie F. Keep that in mind because now the NEMS admin user is gone. I'm going to hit space. Server has unexpectedly closed the network connection. Well, I know it was actually expected. So I'm going to close out of that, zoom out for you. And actually, let's jump back to our Raspberry Pi because it's rebooting. So that's just the screen that you would see over HDMI. And once we see that blue screen again, and you don't have to, you don't, again, you don't have to watch this on a TV or anything. You just know that it takes a couple of moments to reboot. And all of a sudden, you're going to get a ping and you're going to get a, a response when you try to go to the IP address in your browser. That's when it's up and running. Um, so no harm, no foul. And almost there. So this... Raspberry Pi is going to be able to monitor all of our network assets in, in such a way that we can be notified if there's a problem. Goes through the regular checks and kernel drivers and everything else that uh, Linux does. Uh, I should note, too, while we're waiting, that, uh, that NEMS Linux 1.4.1 is based on Debian Stretch. Everything is as current as can possibly be. Um, NEMS 1.4.1 was finalized um, just a couple of months ago and uh, is looking really, really good. There we go. So we are up and running. So now I can jump over back to my computer and let's just refresh the page that was telling us that we need to initialize. And I should see something completely different because I have initialized my NEMS Linux server. And there we go. NEMS Linux version 1.4.1 is up and running. So let's do a quick rundown of the menu system. Configuration. We've got the NEMS SST 
or system settings tool. This is a great component of NEMS because you remember if you've ever used Nagios before, setting up things like the resource.cfg file, uh, if you don't set things up correctly, then Nagios won't start and you have all kinds of trouble and it's onerous to work with config files in the Linux terminal. This gets you out of the Linux terminal and into a UI and allows you to set up things like your SMTP server settings and a bunch of other things. We are going to look at that today. Um, then we've got the NEMS configurator or nconf and that one is very important because this is how we configure all of our Nagios configurations such as hosts, services, check commands, all of that stuff is done there again through a web UI. Then reporting, we've got Nagios Core, which is there really just for the old school Nagios users, because some of you may prefer to use the older interface. Nagios Core, um, the web interface, works really well, and we've included it for you. Um, but I would suggest that if you are new to Nagios, that you instead look at Adagios. And even if you're an old school Nagios user, check out Adagios. I think you're going to be really impressed. So Adagios being an alternative to Nagios Core. Quick rundown from a program programmatic standpoint, me as a programmer, the difference between them. Nagios Core is an old interface based on tables. It is not mobile responsive. Adagios is a mobile responsive bootstrap theme um, that is a complete rewrite of the interface using live status from CheckMK. So if that means nothing to you, basically it is a much more modern interface to achieve the same thing. Nagviz is a visualization platform to allow you to create visual maps of your Nagios configuration. Pretty handy and can be really cool to set that up. NEMS mobile UI is something that typically you wouldn't bring up on a computer, but you would bring up instead on your phone and tablet. And it allows you to use a mobile responsive uh, web interface in order to access your, um, your status of your Nagios um, uh, alerts and things like that. See how things are going. The NEMS TV dashboard, I actually have up and running right here. So this is the NEMS TV dashboard. It's, it's designed specifically so that you can have a TV set um, somewhere in, say, like your server room or something like that, that at a glance, just by looking up at it, you can see, oh, everything's hunky-dory, or whoa, we've got something going on because there's some red status indicators on the NEMS TV da dashboard. So that's something that you can actually just, you just, plug a TV into any computer, and then you access the NEMS Linux server through the web browser and then just make it full screen. That's exactly what's happening here. I've just got Chrome pointed at nems.local slash TV and made it full screen with F11. Um, so that's available to you, and that does not require login, although um, you can set it so that it does require a login if you want that extra privacy on your LAN. Under system, we've got MonitorX, which is a great tool for just simply monitoring the Raspberry Pi itself. I'm using Raspberry Pi as the example. Whatever your hardware is, MonitorX will show you things like the CPU load and all that kind of stuff, memory usage and utilization, swap file usage of the actual server. So that is this device. It has nothing to do with Nagios. It has to do only with this particular device. And that's pretty handy and looks great. 
cockpit is something that uh, is very handy for sysadmins, but you may or may not need it, but it comes pre-installed. Now, anything in NEMS Linux now, I'm going to log in using the initialized username and password that I used. Nice thing about cockpit is that I can see real-time CPU usage versus monitor X, which uses um, like a snapshot on a cron job. It takes a, uh, it makes images that are based on um, like a cron. This is real-time visualization of resources. So now if I head on over, a nice feature of this is clicking on terminal. Now I can actually access a terminal session um, without having to use PuTTY or do anything like that. This is actually connecting me to the NEMS Linux server. That's kind of cool. Uh, it also does allow, incidentally, I should mention without getting into too much detail, it allows you to um, administer multiple NEMS Linux servers through Cockpit, um, at least with the features that Cockpit offers. Then we've got RPi Monitor is a feature only available on Raspberry Pi-based boards. Um, when you install it, it will detect and it will install this for you. This is, um, this is just a, a dashboard that shows you some of the resource usage on your Raspberry Pi. Kind of cool. Webmin is a great interface for uh, system administrators to administer the, f the system itself. Again, this has to do with the Raspberry Pi, not Nagios. Um, so this will allow you to do things like configure your networking or um, do disk upgrades and things like that if you want to go there. Uh, but do keep a NEMS backup because um, what if you break something, right? But this gives you an overview and gives you access to various system things that otherwise would be, you know, under the hood would be terminal-based. Next up and finally in the system menu is Monit. This is a fantastic program that simply monitors the things that are running on our NEMS server. So you'll see NEMS is, is up and running, MariaDB is up and running, Apache 2 is up and running, Nagios is not, execution failed, I'll talk about that in a second, Samba's running, MonitorX is running, and 9590, which is a dummy uh, port listener, is up and running, and I'll talk to you about that as well. Why is Nagios not running? That is because we have yet to create our configuration and therefore Nagios is not ready to be op operational just yet. I'll show you how to do that. Um, what happens if Apache 2 crashes? If Apache 2 were to crash, because it is a part of our uh, our NEMS Monit configuration, it will automatically restart. That's what's so beautiful about Monet. It will automatically restart failed services. So in the background, it's watching for running services. These are the ones that I've sent pre-configured. And if they fail, if they go down for any reason, like if you stop the Apache 2 service, you'll be like, well, why did it start again? It's because Monet is actually uh, monitoring and making sure that Apache 2 is always running. That's very handy. Migrator, I talked briefly about it, but NEMS Migrator allows you to create a backup of your NEMS server. How hard is it? Well, let's click on download and see. Done. I've got it. There's my backup. NEMS Migrator also creates a Samba share for us. If I go slash slash NEMS.local, I see backup. And if I type in my NEMS username and password, you'll see that same file, backup.nems, which is updated automatically every five minutes. If I go back one, you'll see that there's also a home share, and this I can actually drop my, uh, my existing backup.nems file into to make 
uh, restoring a lot easier. You'll see also that there is an optional off-site backup service. This is fantastic. Users are loving this. It'll automatically back up your NEM server to a cloud server uh, in an encrypted format that keeps everything secure um, every single day. And then to restore, uh, you simply just type in, in a quick command, and it's easy peasy, nice and quick. Uh, then you can buy a Pi, support us, various ways you can support NEMS Linux, and how you can get help through the documentation, priority support, community forum, and the official NEMS website. Let's get right into it. I'm going to show you how to configure NEMS Linux. Now, if you've ever used Nagios before, you're used to using the config files. Now, keep in mind, on NEMS Linux, you never have to touch a config file again. It's all done through your browser. So let's do it. First off, I'm going to go into NEMS System Settings Tool, and here we see a personal encryption decryption password. Well, that's cool. Let's add one. That will now make it so that my backups are encrypted automatically. NEMS Migrator's off-site backup license key, if registered, you can enter that here. And then scroll down. Windows Domain Access, you can follow through the documentation to find out how all this works. Pushover Account Info, I am going to set up my Pushover Account. Uh, I've already created uh, an API key uh, just for the demonstration. And with this, I'm going to get Pushover notifications on my phone. But I also want email, so I'm going to configure my email server as well. So we just punch all that information in. and then save all settings. How easy is that? The only other thing here is our optional services. We can turn off optional services if we want to reduce the resource usage. Not that anything here is heavy, but it allows you to turn things off if you're not using them. It also allows you to um, disable the automatic login to the NEMS TV dashboard. So if you want to force a password requirement, you can turn that off, and it will then force the user to have a password. Okay, so now that I have my pushover account info in there. You can learn more about that in the documentation at docs.nemslinux.com. Plus, I have my SMTP email configuration in here. Again, in our documentation, there is some great information on how to set that up, including using Gmail as your SMTP server. So now that I'm ready, I can go NEMS Configurator. And in the NEMS configurator, first of all, I can click on Hosts Show, and I see that NEMS is already being monitored at address 127.0.0.1, the local host. If I go into things like services, I can see that the NEMS root partition, the hard drive, is being monitored as well. I mentioned about uh, hard drive usage. If I jump back to our uh, splash screen here, notice our hard drive usage is now 11%. You, reason for that is because um, NEMS Linux, during the initialization procedure, resized the partition in order to utilize the entire capacity of our SD card. So now let's, uh, let's actually add a host. So I'm going to call this my hypervisor. There we go. Um, and I know that this is 10.0.0.10. That's the IP address on my local LAN. And it could be a WAN address or something like that as long as I've got access to it. And I'm going to monitor that with default Nagios, which is our only available option. We're going to check 24-7 and notify 24-7. Leave the rest as is. Then we're going to notify the contact group admins. Stick around. I'm going to teach you a little bit about that in a moment. And if we want, we can make that a part of the parent host, but in this case, we're not going to do that. 
And I'm going to leave these blank because I want to show you what happens if there's an error message. So I'm going to submit that, and that's going to now create that host. So now if I go into Hosts Show, we now see Hypervisor and NEMS. I mentioned about the admin group. So if I go into contact groups, you see that there are admins and admins is all set up and raring to go and Robbie F is one of the admins and you can add more if you want, but here is Robbie F under contacts. First things first, before you deploy, we need to set up our contact for receiving these notifications. So edit that contact, set my email address because presumably I'm going to want email notifications, but I also remember I set up notifications by pushover. So I need to see, okay, first of all, host notifications. So if I click here, I see notify service by pushover. So that's not the one I want. I want notify host by pushover. Host, okay? Now click the right arrow. Now my user is gonna receive notifications by email and pushover. This is just for the sake of the demonstration. You're gonna probably pick one or the other. Now service notification commands, I wanna use notify service by pushover. And there we go. So now my user, Robbie F., is going to receive emails at this address and notifications by pushover and email. Submit. No changes have happened yet to my Nagios configuration because I haven't generated that configuration yet. So I'm going to now take the settings that I've changed and hit Generate Nagios Config. And remember, I, I purposefully made some errors so that I could show you what happens. So error, deployment not possible due to errors in configuration. And of course, when we see error, we think, oh, this stupid thing, it doesn't work. Let's find out why there's an error. NEMS is very smart about helping you to get this thing up and going. Also notice Nagios Core 4.3.4, just in case you're wondering, this is not 3.5, the base that is available in apt. Uh, it's compiled 4.3.4. Uh, uh, so here's the error message and made red so that it's easy to find. Invalid max check attempts value for host hypervisor. Now you remember we just added the host hypervisor, so we obviously did not enter the max check attempts, which is a requirement. So let's edit that host by going show and then edit and then scroll down a ways and we see, okay, max check attempts. How many times do we want to check it? Uh, number of times to retry checking. See over on the right hand side? Let's say 10. Uh, yeah. Check interval. For the sake of the demonstration, we're going to make these really, really small. Retry interval, one minute. First notification delay, one minute. Notification interval, one minute. And notification options are what? What the heck does that mean? Possible values, derfs. So head on over to the documentation, docs.nemslinux.com. And if you scroll down a little ways on the first page, you're going to see Nagios notification definitions. What's derfs? Notify by when host is down, notify if host is unreachable upon recovery, and if the host is flapping, like up, down, up, down, up, down. And the S stands for notify if a scheduled service downtime begins or ends. So I'm going to want all of those. So notification op options, I've already got it listed there, but D, comma, U, comma, R, comma, F, comma, S is going to give it all to me. And now scroll down and hit submit. It's important to note, if you're not getting your notifications, I'm going to go back into edit. Remember, you have to set the contact group so that admins is the selected items. And you do that by highlighting it and clicking the arrow that points to the right to move it into the right column, okay? Submit. You're going to take some time and learn how the system works. Get into the documentation, get into the community forum, and then you'll be able to find out, uh, get some help.
generating Nag- Nagios config now works perfectly. It says it's ready to deploy, so deploy. And now we're going to get into the front-end interface. So that's the back-end to configure things. And you'll notice that uh, we currently have an, uh, an error message, per se, up on the TV, uh, but now it's gone. See that? Now that the hosts are available, the error message was basically because I hadn't yet configured Nagios. Now that I've configured Nagios and set up some hosts, I see that two hosts are up. Uh, it looks like I've got uh, eight services that are being monitored and so on and so forth. So that's up on my TV now. So back here, I'm going to go into reporting. I'll show you Nagios Core just quickly because uh, I did a lot of work to make it look nicer. There it is. It looks a lot better than, uh, say, your normal um, Nagios Core deployment. You'll see that hypervisor is still pending check. Okay, So it hasn't checked it yet because it's set to check every one minute. Um, then I'm going to check out Adagios instead. Adagios is a much sleeker interface, um, and it is the, the go-to for you on your, your NEMS Linux system, unless you want to be old school. So we have no problems. There's nothing going on. There's nothing that I need to really be concerned with here, and the overview will show me that, and it shows green. So while we're kind of looking at that, um, let's go back to Nagios Core. Did it check it yet? Let's go to the host details. Yes, hypervisor is up. See, it's green. So let's check out some of the other features here. First of all, the web, uh, the mobile UI. I think the best way to show you a mobile UI is to actually bring it up on my phone. Um, so let's go there. I had it up a little bit earlier, doing some tests. Uh, OK, proceed. Because all of your security certificates, your SSL certificates, are self-signed because uh, we do not have a .com or anything associated with it. Um, so you see that there's no problem. I can click on my hosts, and I can see there's my hypervisor. Everything looks good. So this is the uh, mobile interface that you're seeing here in real time. Uh, that's pretty great. TV dashboard, you see it already, but I'm going to bring it up here as well on the computer screen so you can see it a little bit closer. Um, that's what it looks like. And you can bring that up in any browser just by going to your IP address or nems.local slash TV. So let's make something fail. Let's go over to nems configurator and let's open our host hypervisor and all I'm going to do I'm just going to emulate that this is down by simply changing the IP address to something that I know it is not so I know that 10.0.0.253 is not anything on my network it's way high in my pool so that's going to cause Nagios to think that the server's down because it's not going to reply at this point. So let's bring up Adagios and see what happens. Let's kind of keep an eye on things. And it should check pretty quickly. And if all goes well, I should also start to see things on my mobile interface. I'm going to go back to the uh, home screen here so that I can show you that. And with Adagios up on my screen, uh, we'll very quickly see what's, uh, what's actually going on. And if I want to, I can bring up Nagios Core. They're va basically interchangeable. Um, they do the same thing. Um, what does the Dagios and Nagios Core allow you to do? Not only is it a status panel for me, but it's also a way for me to acknowledge outages. So if I know, okay, I've received the notification, I, I'm working on it, I want to stop receiving the notifications, I can acknowledge that um, outage and I can start working on it. And then um, it will stop notifying and it will show as everything good on the uh, TV dashboard. Uh, it also allows you to schedule downtime. So um, both of these products do, Nagios Core and Adagios are both included on your NEMS deployment. Um, 
um, it allows you to schedule that downtime. So if I know I'm going to be replacing hard drives in a server, it's going to go down for any given reason, I can pre-schedule that downtime so that my administrators don't start receiving notifications when things go down. Um, so we've got to take a really quick break. I'm not going to touch a thing, but I do have to take a quick commercial break to say thanks to our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to see how those notifications have been happening. I'm not going to touch anything. I'm just going to wait and see what comes up on our screens. Stick around. Whether you shop on ThinkGeek, GearBest, B&H Photo Video, eBay, or Amazon, or even if you want a free trial of Audible, you'll find the best deals and support the shows we produce by simply visiting the shopping sites you already frequent by using the links on our website. Visit Category5.tv slash partners for the full and ever-growing list and help us create more free content like this show. Thank you for shopping with our partners, and thank you for watching. Welcome back. This is Category 5 Technology TV. This week, we're looking at NEMS Linux, Nagios Enterprise Monitoring Server, which we've deployed on a Raspberry Pi 3. This becomes an entire enterprise monitoring system that communicates with all of our peripherals, all of our endpoint devices, and tells us if there is presumably a problem so that we can be proactive towards support. Now, before the break, I said I'm not going to touch anything. And I didn't, except one thing, because I did miss one step. You remember in Nagios Enconf, uh, in NEMS Enconf, pardon me. Um, let's head on in there. And after I set the IP address to the incorrect IP, I then wondered why I wasn't getting my notification. So I forgot to press generate Nagios config. Now, when you create a new configuration setting in, um, in NEMS Enconf, you have to actually generate and deploy that configuration. Otherwise, you're going to wonder why your new configuration isn't taking place. Make sure you add that to your, uh, your to-do list. <laughs> right at the end, I'm going to deploy. And now that I've deployed, first thing I notice, of course, is that my TV display, the, the NEMS TV dashboard, shows that the hypervisor is an unhandled host problem. And I can also see that there is a host down. Let's bring that up a little bit closer for you. I'm going to bring it up on my screen so that you can see um, what the TV display looks like. There it is. So you can see that's what it looks like when the host is down. So I've got 50% of my host down, and it's alerting me through the red color that, um, hey, there is definitely something going on that's a problem. So make sure you push out that NEMS um, configuration to your Nagio server before you move on and do a presentation live on TV, for example. So now, if I look at a Nagios, I can see that there is something going on. 50% of my hosts are orange. What? Let's click on Open Problems, and I can see that my hypervisor does have a problem, and it says that it is simply down. Critical. Host not reachable. It's unreachable. Oh, well, that's because it's the wrong IP address. We know that. Uh, but it could be, let's say, that the server is actually powered off or something like that, or maybe it's crashed. It could be any one of those things. Let's look at uh, Nagios Core, just for those purists who want to know how things look there. There it is. Hypervisor's down. And there it is. And we can actually acknowledge this host problem if we want through Nagios Core. But we like the interface over at 
Adagios because it is a mobile responsive, much more current, much more modern. So I'm going to hit Acknowledge. That's that button up at the top left here. If you hover over, it will tell you what they are. Acknowledge. Schedule downtime and so on. So I'm going to acknowledge and I'm going to hit, um, I'll fix this. And then acknowledge the problem. So now in my Adagios, it says this, is, this has been acknowledged and presumably I'm going to start to see some changes around here. I'm going to bring up um, my notifications and everything. Did I s look at this? So here's the NEMS mobile UI. I can see that it was down hypervisor before that uh, acknowledgement comes in. There it is. I can see that it was down in the mobile UI and this is going to automatically update itself as well. But let's head on over to pushover. Whoa, I've got some notifications there, folks. And if I click on one, it says, hey, your hypervisor is down, critical, host unreachable, and it's got the IP address. Let's go over to my email and see what we've got there. Oh, more emails, too. You don't have to have email and pushover configured. I'm doing this for the sake of the demonstration, but you can see that the email is pretty much the same thing. Oh, and that's an acknowledgement. You see, it actually sent me an email about the acknowledgement. Host unreachable. There's the actual hypervisor is down alert. That's what I got by email. Going back over to pushover, uh, I'm going to receive a new pushover notification about the... Oh, I already did. The acknowledgement is there. There it is. So let's, um, let's now head back over to nconf and let's bring everything back online. Let's say we are powering it back on, presumably. Or in our case, oh, I realized somebody punched in the wrong IP address. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> Submit and finally generate Nagios config. And we're going to deploy that. It's instantaneous. It's going to take effect. Uh, but it is going to check, as we know, every one minute. So that problem is not going to disappear instantly, but it will disappear very, very quickly. And then we will start to receive notifications and things like that. Now I noticed that this has already said, the TV has already said everything's good. So has Adagios caught up to the TV? Uh, yeah, no. Adagios still says there's a problem. So there's like a slight I don't know, 30-second delay or whatever it might be between different applications. Everything's communicating with the same backend, which is the Nagios core on your NEMS Linux server, and then they're going to all update together. So I should be receiving notifications. I just felt my phone vibrate. Here it is. So here's pushover, and you see a new one up at the top, host recovery. We've got hypervisor is up. And there it is. We've got no packet loss. Everything looks good. I should also receive an email. There it is. Recovery. Hypervisor is up. So that is the power of a NEMS Linux server. It's available absolutely free at nemslinux.com. I'm out of time. I would love to show you everything. Adagios now says that everything is good. And that is NEMS Linux. Big thumbs up from the developer. I'm biased, but it is so sleek. So go check it out, nemslinux.com. I'm out of time to show it to you, but there's great documentation. There's a fantastic community forum. If you want to become a patron to support the project, you can interact directly with me about the project, and it's a great way to get involved as well. I'm going to throw things over to you, Becca. Here are the news stories we're covering this week in the Category 5.TV newsroom. The lesson learned from Dutch court, crime does pay, Ransomware thieves have been let off with community service. Another German state plans to a switchback from Linux to Windows. Google has followed the lead of Apple by banning crypto mining apps from its Play Store. Microsoft wants to stop Windows 10 updates from annoying you. 
These stories are coming right up. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Weston. Yeah, man. You're building a brand new beautiful website. What? Aren't you? No. Am I? Oh, you're a terrible actor. What? This is where acting comes into play. Oh, I didn't know we were acting. You're supposed to act. Okay, fair enough. All right. I'm building a really cool website. Are you building a really cool website? Just because Jeff is confused doesn't mean you have to be. Visit cat5.tv slash dreamhost to sign up for unlimited web hosting for your website with unlimited email accounts, MySQL databases, the latest version of PHP, WordPress, and more, and even a free domain name registration. It's less than $6 per month, so sign up today. cat5.tv slash dreamhost. This is the Category5.tv newsroom, covering the week's top tech stories with a slight Linux bias. I'm Becca Ferguson, and here are the top stories we're following this week. Two men who masterminded various CoinVault ransomware infections will carry out 240 hours of community service as punishment for compromising thousands of computers and profiting around $12,000 from their users. The sentence was handed down by a court in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, where it was ruled brothers Melvin and Dennis Van de Ben de B had earned leniency based on their cooperation with police, lack of a criminal record, and young ages at the time they were collared in 2015. Melvin was 22 and Dennis 18 at the time of their arrest. Prosecutors had asked that they receive a year in prison in addition to the 240 hours of community service. CoinVault surfaced in 2014 as a high-profile scrambling malware. The software encrypted victims' documents and demanded they pay a ransom of one bitcoin, worth a few hundred euros at the time, to restore access to their data. While the pair was only charged with infecting 1,259 machines, researchers have estimated that the actual number of PCs hit with the malware was more like 14,000 with victims in more than 20 countries. It was claimed in court that about 100 people coughed up the ransom demands before antivirus makers were able to develop a decryption tool to unscramble hostage files. The malware would only be eradicated fully in 2015 when the brothers were arrested and the full decryption keys were recovered. Interestingly, it was the pair's Dutch nationality that brought them down. Researchers were able to pinpoint the locality of the authors to the Netherlands after finding snippets of the code containing flawless Dutch phrases that are usually only used by native speakers of the notoriously difficult language. Kaspersky Lab, who helped lead the investigation and eventually an eventual takedown of CoinVault, said that despite the lenient sentence, the ultimate takeaway from the three-year ordeal should be that in the end, extortionists do get caught. Hmm. And get 240 hours of community service <laughs> for something. Yeah. I, sometimes folks are made as, as, to be used as an example. Like, like let's let's let people know that hey, you do not want to go down this route route of criminal activity using computers, and this is quite the opposite of that. Where, yeah, you know, do you think that they should have? Um, a much less lenient sentence. Well, first of all, what happened with all the money that they collected? Well, I'd imagine that the courts would have taken it. I mean, they can't have, they can't have just given them the money. Okay, well, 240 community hours of community service, and 
now you're rich. You can keep the money in your bank account. No, I don't think that's going to yeah, be the case. Right? But I mean, did the victims get their money back? That's what I wonder. Oh. Or did they get their files back? Like, what about the, what about the victims that didn't get their files back? Mm-hmm. I mean, because we're assuming, I mean, that the Kaspersky tool that is used to decrypt it, maybe because they've got the master keys, they can... But people are not all going to know that they can reach out and download a program to decrypt their files. By mm-hmm. then, maybe they've moved on and t- taken the loss. Or maybe some companies were put out of business by it. Think about a small company that, whose entire file system was encrypted and they didn't have the money to cough up a Bitcoin mm-hmm. that went up to $1,900 in value and then they, uh, they went out of, maybe they went out of business. Yeah. That I happens. don't know. I, get, I wonder what a comparable sentence would be for shoplifting. Like just in terms of dollars yeah. and cents. If you stole X number of dollars from a store versus crypto sure. coins... So $12,000 from a store. Are you yeah. going to get just 240, 240 hours of community service? No, you'd be spending some time in jail. Yeah. For sure. If you walked so, into a bank and took $12,000, do you think you're going to just do community service? I feel like it's a... It does seem a like a very, very slight sentence. Mm-hmm. I don't and know. Maybe the judge didn't think it was that big of a deal. I don't know. Perhaps. Maybe if, it was a, if they had stolen more than 12000 maybe that that was a deciding factor like if they had stolen a million dollars maybe they would have gone to jail and i think that the the along that vein the the fear with that mindset is that they didn't go out and steal a targeted twelve thousand dollars no they let loose a piece of malware that could have caused uh, that did cause a lot of damage for a lot of people and a lot of companies yeah and so they got away with twelve thousand dollars say but what about the damages? What about the damage that cannot be seen or calculated yeah. or, or measured? That's where, you know, I think that maybe they should have taken that more into account versus, oh, these young chaps were just having some fun, <laughs> you know, doing what kids do these days, hacking. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I don't like people being used as an example per se, but maybe this was a little bit too lenient. Certainly, I would be feeling that way if I was one of the, the people who got attacked mm-hmm. by their ransomware. Yeah. The German state of Lower Saxony plans to follow Munich's example and migrate 13,000 users from Linux back to Windows. Apparently undaunted by the cost of the Munich switch, which we reported in January, could be as much as 100 million euros. Lower Saxony is considering making the change in its tax office. The state seems to expect a much cheaper transition, with a first-year budget at 5.9 million euros and another 7 million euros further out. The tax office argues its decision is driven by compatibility. Field workers and and teleworkers overwhelmingly use Windows, while the OpenSUSE variants are installed on its office workstations. The office workstations are also aging and due for replacement, something that helped open the door for Windows. The move is in its early stages, however, with the Lower Saxony government currently defining the framework conditions of the migration, and this will be followed by a pre-selection of possible solutions. We can only hope that Lower Saxony has a better time of it than Munich. After 15 years of using Linux, Munich voted in February of 2017 to start the long march 
back to Microsoft. Some Microsoft software proved hard to kill even after so long. For example, Munich stayed with Microsoft Exchange for mail servers. Hmm, okay, so we've got an IT crew that maybe doesn't know about these software alternatives that we've talked about on the show. Um, for example, Microsoft Exchange. So if Microsoft Exchange has got them held up, why aren't we looking at Zimbra? <laughs> you know, like an alternative that is available that is not a proprietary Microsoft product. Yeah. We had a talk on uh, episode number 568 uh, of Category 5 Technology TV, you and I, about the um, kind of the, the alternate compatible software, looking at Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel, Microsoft PowerPoint versus LibreOffice and Linux versus Windows and being able to use and, and finding that there is a lot of cross-compatibility. But if you're used to Microsoft Windows and that's what you use at home, you might come into LibreOffice and say, oh, every time I save a document, nobody can open them mm -hmm. or I can't open them at home. So yeah. what's the solution to that? Just to save it as a docs right. or whatever. To save it as the yeah. correct format for the one that you're trying to open it in. So if you're going to open it in Word, save it as a docx. And when you go to save, it gives you a whole list of ways that you can save it. Millions so it, of files. So if formats. you just scroll through, you would see the option that you wanted. So it's not like you even have to be told to do this or Google this. It's right there in right. the options when you go to save. Yeah. So The default, of course, is going to be... Open document format. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the default. But you just click the arrow down to see what your options are and then pick. Mm -hmm. and pick Microsoft Word if that's what you need compatibility for. Mm -hmm. So there's always an alternative. So to think of the amount of money being invested in this switch, and, and quite frankly, if, so if hardware is aging, we've found that aging hardware works really, really well with Linux versus... Microsoft yes. Windows, like yeah, Microsoft true. Windows, is always pushing for, and we have we did experience this recently with, and Becca's my wife, by the way, if you didn't know this, we experienced <laughs> this recently with your laptop, where even on Linux, we're starting to see that, but because there are so many different flavors, we can switch, and the story behind that is Becca's running Ubuntu on her aging laptop, but the laptop is still great, but a kernel update deprecated some ACPI drivers that make it compatible with her laptop. So now we have to actually edit the Grub bootloader and, and there is a little bit of fan, fan dangling to make it compatible and it causes a couple of little minor issues like mm -hmm. the volume control button's not working now and things like that. Well, and it wouldn't boot. <laughs> yeah, but... <with laughs> a the, minor issue. <laughs> yeah, but that's, you know, we can, we can fix that, editing the Grub bootloader. But you may not know that if you're just a novice user, for sure. So, but yeah. looking at that and saying, okay, well, if Ubuntu is pushing forward like Microsoft to uh, push you toward newer hardware and your hardware is still great and works great and does everything you need it to do, it's not slow by any stretch. It mm -hmm. works really well. So we could just grab a different flavor of Linux. We don't have to keep on Ubuntu. We can just change to, uh, to a, another distro. We, mm -hmm. Even if we want to just put Debian on it and flavor it the way that you want. Install yeah. Mate and make it look good and make it work really well and then we've yep. got compatibility for another few years. So if hardware deprecation is part of it, sure, you, there comes a time when you've got to replace it but um, Linux is going to get a lot more longevity on hard, any hardware than Windows is. Mm -hmm. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Yeah. So that's not an excuse. Come on. <laughs> Google has followed the lead of Apple by banning crypto mining from apps from its Play Store. 
An update to the company's developer policy reads, we don't allow apps that mine cryptocurrency on devices. The company had previously banned cryptocurrency mining extensions on its Chrome browser. This move marks another step by banks and tech tech companies trying to get to grips with the practicalities of cryptocurrencies. The ban does not extend to all software involved with mining virtual cash. Google, like Apple, said it would allow people to make apps that let them manage mining being done elsewhere, such as on cloud computer platforms. When mining is done on device, there is a risk that the smartphone will overheat as a result of intense processing. The mining can also quickly deplete batteries. Some malware gangs have also moved to adopt cryptocurrency mining. Many poorly protected websites have had mining code inserted on them to use visitors' computers to generate the cash. The cryptocurrency mining restrictions are one of several changes Google has made to its developer policies. Okay. There's one i got to disagree with. Yeah. I mean, you, I would love to hear your thoughts below. I think what we're doing is exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. And by we, I mean Google. <laughs> Think about psychologically what we're doing here. So anyone who wants to mine, they're now being forced to move over to a rooted phone mm -hmm. so that they can gain access to mining software if they want to mine on their phone. Mm -hmm. So there are two, two spectrums for mining. There's the malicious miner. So somehow malware keeps getting coupled in with crypto mining mm -hmm. and making crypto mining look like malware. It's not. So yeah, remove all the malware from Google Play that mines software without the user's permission. But if I'm a user who wants to mine cryptocurrency and I want to use my phone to do so, you're not going to get a very good hash rate, but if that's what you want to do, you want to do it, so let me do it. Um, that's a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. So if I install a, a, a video game, and that video game is mining in the background without my permission, that should be banned. Yeah. If I am mining TurtleCoin, and I want to mine it on my phone, I should be able to install that software because I want that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there are entire communities of people who are constantly asking in the forums, how can I mine this cryptocurrency on my phone? How, what do I need to install? How do I get this set up? And if we now remove all that capability from Google Play, now in order for those users to be able to mine on their phone, they have to root their phone. Mm -hmm. By rooting their phone and by using illicit software now, because now we've made that software illicit, um, they're opening themselves up to malware. Yeah. Because now it's only available in the hacked store. So now, who knows whether it's doing other things in the background that I'm not giving it permission to do. Yeah. That's a, that's a risk. So I wish that they would stop coupling cryptocurrency mining with malware. Yeah. They're not, they're <laughs> not synonymous mm -hmm. at all. Unfortunately, exactly. crypto mining is just something that malware has been using because mm -hmm. it makes them money. Yeah. <laughs> but it also makes me money. So stay away from my mining software. Um, I don't mine on my phone because, it, like they say, it could overheat. And it could, but that's a choice that a user makes if they mm -hmm. want to do that. Mm -hmm. But if they started blocking software on my computers and things like that, then that would be a, a big issue. Yeah. So you seem to agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> You're like, our cryptocurrency portfolio is doing pretty good, so I don't want this to stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, what do you think? Are you mining cryptocurrency? And if you are, are you doing it on your phone? And does this affect you? And how? 
be interesting to hear from the community as to whether or not this affects you. Mm -hmm. Microsoft is finally doing something about the way Windows 10 handles updates, and it's using machine learning to accomplish the task. If it's successful, updating Windows 10 should, in the future, become much less annoying. Windows 10, be nice. <laughs> Windows 10 can be a little aggressive when installing updates. Unless you know how to manage Windows 10 updates, they'll come thick and fast and start installing when you least expect it, possibly rebooting your PC at an inopportune moment. Microsoft has a plan up its sleeve to prevent this from happening, and it's, help, it's being tested right now by Windows 10 insiders. The key is artificial intelligence, which Microsoft hopes will be able to accurately predict when the time is right to install updates. If all goes well in testing, the new system should reach ordinary Windows 10 users later in early 2019. Windows Insider Chief Donna Sarkar asked in a blog post, have you ever had to stop what you were doing or wait for your computer to boot up because the device updated at the wrong time? To which everyone replied yes. Microsoft has listened to this feedback, so if you have an update pending, we've updated our re reboot logic to use a new system that is more adaptive and proactive. We trained a predictive model that can accurately predict when the right time to restart the devices. This means that Microsoft will not only check if you are currently using your device before we restart, but we will also try to predict if you had just left the device to grab a cup of coffee and will return shortly. Or at least that's the plan. Is Microsoft's approach going to work for users? We'll have to wait and see until we can see it working in the wild to know. <laughs> okay, so I understand the, the motivation behind this. People are annoyed that their computers, you haven't been using Windows for a long time, so no. you've heard stories. Well, you do it for work. You have customers oh, yeah. that use Windows, and so you have frequently messaged me <laughs> to say, oh, these Face Windows, pump. I'm yeah. sitting here waiting for Windows updates. And, oh, yeah. And, oh, and my sister, too, has occasionally complained that she's in the middle of doing something important on her laptop, and then a Windows update starts. I had and then she has to come back to it the next day because suddenly her evening's lost to the update. Yeah, Sasha's uh, work computer, She, because uh, I go in and I get a chiropractic adjustment, and she said that there was a, an issue with one of the monitors. The resolution wasn't correct. Could I just take a quick look at it? Mm -hmm. It would take me 15 seconds to correct the resolution on a monitor. Mm -hmm. We turned it on. Please wait. Don't shut down your computer. Oh. Wait. So I sat there for a few minutes, and it was like at 2%. 3%. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, I got to get my adjustment and go. It's time for work. And I didn't actually get to do it. <laughs> I didn't actually get to fix it for them. So like that is so frustrating. But mm -hmm. Microsoft's approach is this. Let's, let's look at something broken. And instead of fixing it, let's try to do it at times when it's not going to affect the user as badly. But okay, so you're going to reboot at three o'clock in the morning. I had a notepad window with all my, you know, with my shopping list open and I didn't save it before. So now that's gone. Or I, you know, just to give you a scenario, maybe I had a, something up that is now lost or I was, I have a lot of stuff open on my computer when I leave work and I know this is what I'm going to come back to tomorrow and I'm going to pick up where I left off mm. and I come back and everything's closed. It's gone. Hi, we rebooted your computer because our <laughs> stupid AI decided that it was time. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's look at Linux for a moment with slight Linux bias, right? That's what we, we have. <laughs> but there's a reason for the bias. It's not just like cliche or, or anything like that. We get updates all the time. How often do we have to reboot? Mm -hmm. 
because the the uh, the answer is not often <laughs> because the the Linux update system will update in the background you can do an apt upgrade whenever you want to it'll ask you if you want to do an upgrade right now and then when it's done it'll say done sometimes and it'll say sometimes you need to it says you need to reboot but it but does it, force it, it will give you the option to do it later yeah like it says do you want to reboot now or later yeah i'll just wait until the end of my shift yeah no problem I, and and it lets you do that that's how it should be so microsoft's approach t- is to say let's take the option away from the user let's take that whole you know Linux's approach to, would you like to reboot now or would you like to reboot later? Mm -hmm. That's the way I think it should be. Microsoft is saying, okay, the user can't make that decision because they're, (laughs) and we know better. So let's use our AI to make the decision. So we'll say to the AI, AI, would you like to reboot now or later? Why are we taking this approach? It also feels like a f- privacy issue because... <laughs> now, monitoring if I'm getting a now, cup of coffee? Now they know when you're on your computer, when sure. you're not. They know all your activity. Welcome to Windows 10. Yeah, that's all part they of could, it. They can sort of track you through your computer activity. Yeah. We yeah. know so-and-so is always on the computer at such and such time for this amount of time. And when he's not... That's when we reboot. <laughs> but why are we, why are we taking it away from the user and making it an AI decision when it should just be... Would you like to reboot now or would you like to do it at your own convenience? Because Windows has this thing that when it updates, everything breaks unless you reboot. Uh, well, it, for one thing, though, I can say being on Linux, I know that there are updates that are needed to be installed, mm-hmm. but I can go days where I just keep forgetting and I don't do it. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just keep putting that off. Sometimes, sometimes a couple weeks. Before I get around to doing it, so maybe they just don't... But are those not the couple of weeks where you're just, I'm really busy, I don't have time to I am busy. It. Right. Occasionally I've had... So you made had... the decision. You are the AI because you're the user. Don't take yeah, that Yeah, well, it's a control me. issue. They don't want to leave it up to the user. They just want to be in full control. Yeah. Because I've occasionally had things start to stop working properly, and then I think, oh, I'll try installing updates. Yeah. I do that, and then it fixes it. It's all better. But... Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like a control issue. They don't want to leave it up to the user yeah. to do it. And I have to disagree. That's where, that's where Windows Update is failing. It's not, that they're, it's not the annoyance of me having to reboot during the business day. It's that Microsoft is taking away my choice. Yeah. Don't take away my choice. That's what ticks me off as a user. That's what ticks off my customers who are on Windows 10. Mm-hmm. Not whether or not an AI says I should reboot at 3 a.m. <laughs> That's not the right way to go. That's my opinion. What do you think? I'd love to see your comments below. If you agree, give me a thumbs up. If you don't agree, just go somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) No thumbs down. Come on, come on, come on. Or if you don't agree, comment and explain why. I'm with her. Start a conversation. That's perfect. (laughs) Uh, Big thanks to Roy W. Nash and our community of viewers for submitting stories to us this week. Thanks for watching the Category 5.TV Newsroom. Don't forget to like and subscribe for all your tech news with a slight Linux bias. And for, the, for more content, be sure to check out our website. From the Category 5.TV Newsroom, I'm Becca Ferguson.
And I'm Robbie Ferguson. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We will be back with our regular live show uh, next Wednesday night. And of course, if you're watching this on demand, it probably doesn't affect you when we pre-record, but uh, we look forward to seeing you and interacting with our chat room uh, again next week. So have a great week, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.